Several years back, it's been quite a while now, but uh, probably 2010 or so, springtime of 2010 into the summer, we had a, an intern come and help us uh, in Brazil, and we had uh, a newborn at the time. Uh, so Mary, Kate would have been the newborn uh, with us at the time. She was about six weeks old, and by the time this intern came, she was a few months old by that time, but uh, the intern was, came, was excited, and was doing different things, cooked us a meal, and uh, was, we were trying to get her involved in different aspects of the ministry. And one particular day, she, uh, she was you know, there in the house, and, and Mary, like most babies do often, had a dirty diaper. So Kim turned to the, the intern and said, hey, would, would you be able to change your diaper? And right away she says, oh, no. Oh, I don't do diapers. And we just laughed, you know, oh, okay, you don't do diapers. So Kim proceeded to change her diaper, and now that intern has several babies of her own, and uh, they live here in the Atlanta area, and we're still good friends with them. They're family friends, but I think she has probably learned how to change diapers by now. But, you know, as we think about fatherhood, as we think about parenting, there are many opportunities uh, with children to learn the importance of, of servanthood and of doing things that we don't enjoy doing and that are, that are difficult. Uh, even Fox News, yesterday I, I saw an article. It says the crisis of our nation is the lack of fathers in the home. How different our country would be. How different our schools would be. How different our cities would be if we had more fathers present in the home, taking leadership and showing servant leadership as we see even in Christ, and as we'll see here in Nehemiah chapter 5, that even Nehemiah displayed. So I want to look at some elements of servant leadership. Let's start with uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We see, first of all, that servant leadership is God-centered. Servant leadership is God-centered. Nehemiah chapter 5, and verse 14, says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor... Okay, so right away we, we see Nehemiah is in a position of leadership... Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, or in essence, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now notice in verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But notice this last phrase, which is key to servant leadership. But I did not do so because of the fear of who? God. Nehemiah wasn't, this wasn't a political strategy. Nehemiah wasn't trying to be, you know, just a man of the people and a governor that would be liked by the people. But he didn't do as the former governors had done because he feared God. It was a God-centered choice to refuse to follow the world's leadership philosophy. This was a God-centered refusal to follow the world's leadership philosophy. We see the former governors, what they did. And not only in Nehemiah's time, but we see that time and time again in our nation, the United States of America. We saw it often in Brazil, where as people rose to leadership, Instead of serving the people, they begin to, to see, how can I make the most for me? 
And oftentimes those stories will hit the news. You know, so-and-so had inside information and they did this or they did that. Or so-and-so, you know, was corrupt and they, they stole this or they took advantage of this group or this law. But yet we see servant leadership is God-centered. And there's a refusal to say, no, this is how the world does it. But I'm going to do it in a way that fears God and honors him with how we serve. So worldly leadership philosophy oftentimes is equated with use others for personal gain, for personal benefit, for personal pleasure. A servant leadership philosophy is serve others for their good and for God's glory. Look with me in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Serve others for their good and for God's glory. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. <clears throat> this is shortly after James and John, and even their mom was involved with asking, you know, if they could be seated at the left hand or the right hand of Christ. And Christ gives a brief but very important and fundamental lesson on leadership. And he says this in verse 25 of Matthew 20. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Once again, this Nehemiah went against the culture. The former governors had taken this right. They had, uh, had levied the tax on the people to eat of the governor's allowance. It was kind of his, his privilege, his prerogative to do that. But he said, no, I didn't do that because I feared God. Jesus, then as he was teaching James and John, you're asking to be seated on my left hand and on my right hand. But don't think about how the Gentiles do it as they lord the authority over others. But be a servant, be a slave, even as I have come to serve. Read a quote recently. Dwayne Elmer said this Power is meant to be shared with the goal of empowering others. Hoarded power weakens others and exalts oneself. Power, when grounded in biblical values, serves others by liberating them. Now, notice this last phrase it acknowledges that people bear the image of God. And treats them in a way that will nurture the development of that image. So in so doing, we honor the creator. So as a leader and as you lead, and all of us have, not just dads, but all of us have opportunities of leadership. As you see others around you in your leadership circles, and as you see them as, boy, they are, they are image bearers of God. And as I serve them, as I lead them, then I'm doing it for their good so they can develop that image of God even more. Now, obviously, if somebody doesn't know Christ as their Savior, our first goal is to lead in such, such a way that reflects Christ and helps them to, in, in essence, know the, the chief leader, Jesus Christ. But those who are believers then, we're not leading them. In, in, in essence, as a pastor, I shouldn't lead you as a church just to benefit me or to make my name great or even to make the name of One Hope great. But I want to see you reflect the image of God better as I lead you. And as you help me, as, as your church, as, as the church helps me, because I'm a sheep also. And as you help me to do the same thing, that I would reflect the image of God 
even better. You know, dads, how are you tempted to lead your family in a way that just benefits you, maybe? I remember showing up at a church and, uh, and, and another, we were there for a meeting, but we happened to, this other missionary dropped in, and that's, that happens sometimes. We even did that. We would visit churches if we had a free Sunday just to get to know other churches in the area, meet pastors, and sometimes that would open up an, an opportunity to present our ministry. But I'll never forget, this, this other missionary came in, and you know he came in, and he was talking to the pastor, and, and all the kids kind of came in right after him, almost as if they were like marching. And then they just stood still, like right in a line. I was like, wow, um, man, they're super like under control. And throughout the morning, I noticed that the dad not, didn't just lead them as a servant, but he was, it was more like a dictator. It was kind of like, so his kids were there ma- basically just to kind of prop him up. That is not the idea of servant leadership. Sure, there needs to be control and we can lay some parameters, but as parents and as dads, our kids and our wife don't exist just to please us and to serve us and to make our life easier and better. To the contrary, we should be saying, God, how can I lead my children? How can I help them to be better image bearers of God? How can I help to improve the talents that you've given them and to develop them? How can I serve my wife in a way that she will reflect Christ more effectively for you? How are you tempted to lead your wife and children in a way that pleases maybe just you? Dads and even others that are in leadership positions, how are you tempted to lead others outside of the family? Maybe it's your job. Maybe even in the church as you have leadership positions, how are you tempted to lead others in a way that will benefit you, that will bring you fame, that will bring you maybe increased power? I want to encourage you, just as Nehemiah did, to refuse to follow the world's leadership philosophy. That is not servant leadership. We see, secondly, God-centered leadership is also a God-centered courage to rebuke those who take advantage of others and to intervene. There's two steps here. I think it's important. Oftentimes, I think we, we rebuke and, and we speak out against others who maybe take advantage of others, but... Not as often do we intervene on behalf of the vulnerable. Jump back to verse 1 of chapter 5 in Nehemiah. We started in the middle of the chapter as we got a glimpse of Nehemiah's motivation. As he said, I don't do these things because of the fear of God. Now let's go back to verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 5 and see what problems he was facing. So in Nehemiah's time, we see here in verses 1 through 5, The problem of the rich Jews taking advantage of the poor Jews. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. 
For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So in essence, the, the, some of the rich Jews, some of the nobles that we even saw back in Nehemiah chapter 3, that some of the nobles were not actively helping in building the wall. Some of them even had some in, inside connections with Sanballat and Tobiah. But some of those same rich Jews seemed to be taking advantage of the poor Jews. The poor Jews, they didn't have the crop that they expected. There was a famine. And so in, in, in order to pay the king's tax, they were mortgaging their fields to the rich Jews. But then it got to a point where even their daughters and their children were beginning to be enslaved to work just for their rich Jewish brethren. So Nehemiah's response in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 6 was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as we as far as we were able have brought back, I'm sorry, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Now, there's not a whole lot of detail here, but it it looks like that Nehemiah had even done his best from to, to get Jewish people out of slavery and bring them back to Jerusalem, maybe even purchasing them, maybe even paying their debt so that some of them could come back to Jerusalem. And now he tells the rich Jews and the nobles and, and the Jewish officials, isn't it interesting that we have, as much as we've been able to, bought back some of the Jews out of slavery, basically from the Gentiles, but now you're enslaving them so that we have to buy them from you. He's saying this, this should not be. Continue on in Nehemiah chapter, chapter 5, the end of verse 8. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So once again, Nehemiah comes back to what motivates him as a leader. And now he's rebuking those who've taken advantage of the more vulnerable and says, shouldn't the fear of God lead you to act in a different way? Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, verse 12, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This was a courageous act of leadership. Because these noble, these officials, Nehemiah could have looked at them and, and thought, Boy, this is kind of my key to success here. I need them on my side. 
if I kind of just turn, turn my, my, my eye a little bit and, and allow this to slide? He's like, no. Because I fear God, I'm going to lead them and I'm going to tell them that they also need to fear God and, and quit this practice of taking advantage of the vulnerable. But not only did he stop at the rebuke, he said, you, sh- you should pay back. And we are lending money. We are helping them to get out of this situation. That was back in Nehemiah's time. Now, even as I mentioned, even the Fox News article, and it's very evident, nobody will be surprised to think about, we live in a society where there are many fatherless homes. There are many broken homes. There are many even single-parent homes, and they may even be single dads. It's easy for us to, to know, knowing the scriptures and knowing the biblical principles of leadership and of parenting and a biblical love, it's very easy to rebuke and to, to speak out against the worldly philosophy of family, of dysfunctional homes, but it's not quite so easy to intervene on behalf of the vulnerable. It's not so easy to step in and try to mentor a, a child who is in a fatherless home. It's not so easy to step out and try to help someone who is a college student who's struggling, who maybe doesn't have a good background, and we step out and go, hey, let me help you to take the steps into adulthood. So we see even a principle here in, the, in Nehemiah, yes, We should have the courage to speak out, but we also should have the courage and the sacrifice to step in, to intervene. Tony Evans has often taught about this and has often preached that this is is one area where the church has greatly lacked in years past. The church often, as as a whole, the evangelical church has been very faithful in a large part to preach God's word. The church has been very faithful to preach, you know, the importance of the family and how God instituted the family. But their church has not done so great a job as volunteering in the local schools, helping children that are from broken homes learn how to read, stepping in and helping children who are from broken homes learn that God the Father loves them and has a plan of salvation for their life too. May God help us as individuals. May God help us as a church as we have opportunities to step in, to intervene, to help single parent families, to help those who are in more vulnerable situations, to help those who are elderly and many times are taken advantage of. May we step in and say, we want to show the love of Christ. Not, this isn't just a social gospel But we want to share and show you how Jesus loves you and how that moves us to be a channel of God's blessing to you. God-centered courage to rebuke those who take advantage and intervene on behalf of the vulnerable. Secondly, we see that servant leadership is others-oriented. Others-oriented. Look at Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. Nehemiah is is sensitive to what's happened in the past. He's thinking about others under his leadership now as governor. 
But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Then jump to verse 18. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Notice the last phrase. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Praise the Lord. For a servant leader like Nehemiah who was, who was sensitive, who was aware, and says, no, I, I will not do this because it's too heavy on the people. May God give us wisdom, dads, as we serve our families to not be dictators, but to be servant leaders and to know the balance. May God help us as business owners. May God help us as teachers that we would serve in a way that reflects our love for Christ and reflects our love for others. Servant leaders don't seek to gain selfishly. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 begins to talk through and he begins to, do, to defend in a way his apostleship. And he even, he even says some phrases like, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to say is kind of crazy and I'm, I'm boasting in some of these areas of weakness In essence, proving that as an apostle, he was committed and dedicated and genuine servant of the Lord. So in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he begins to list some of the difficulties that he has experienced. Now before we even read this passage, I want you to think about in our world and in our society of rock star preachers, of sometimes more emotional and more show-based church gatherings, how would this come across? For someone aspiring to go into the ministry but has that mentality, boy, I want to be a rock star preacher. I want to be, I want to be the cool guy. I want to be the guy that everybody likes. I want to be the guy with power. I want to be the guy that, that, that even you know, the city looks to as, oh, man, what a, what a cool dude. Well, think about what Paul talks about in his servant leadership. Verse 23 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Though many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And apart from other things, verse 28, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Okay, think with me. This is a very difficult list and job description for somebody to look at and go, oh yeah, count me in. Danger, 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 imprisonment. Cold, without food, beatings. Whoo, yeah. But that's the idea of Paul's servant-based leadership because he feared God 
He wasn't in it for personal gain. He didn't respond to Jesus on the road to Damascus and go, will this be easy? Am I going to have a lot of influence? Am I going to be powerful? Am I going to be famous? Will this help my retirement account? So no, I'll follow. I'm going to follow you. By your grace, I've been called to be a minister to the Gentiles, Paul says. Still in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, notice what he says in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then if you're in 2 Corinthians, jump to chapter 12 and verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the essence of servant-based leadership. Servant leaders don't seek to gain selfishly. I, I think I will remember for a long time, maybe at some point I'll forget in my old age, I don't know, but for a long time, I have remembered, and I think I will remember, Bill and Iris Cobb. As a kid, in a church, Circle Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia, we, I would often see Bill and Iris Cobb come to church in a beetle bug. But I've never seen more people packed into a beetle bug, other than maybe sometimes in Brazil. But other, in the States, I've never seen a beetle bug so packed with people than when Bill and Iris Cobb would show up at church. They never had children. But, oh, they had a lot of children. They had a lot of kids that they invested in and they poured into. And now, years later, many of those kids are, are serving Christ and have families of their own who at that time had little hope. They were from broken homes. They didn't see a dad and mom love each other. They didn't see a dad and mom communicate. They didn't know a dad and mom who based their lives on the, on, on the truths of Scripture. But Bill and Iris Cobb, a pecan farmer in Albany, Georgia, took these people, these kids in and would bring them to church and would, would help them with schoolwork and often would even help financially later. And Bill and Iris Cobb have many, many children, although they never had any blood children of their own. Praise God. It wasn't for personal gain. It didn't give them more money. It didn't give them more, more fame. But they saw a need and they jumped in. They said, God, help us to invest in these kids. Greg and Katie Lyles, friends of ours from Mikado Baptist Church. And I, I pray that at some point you'll be able to meet them and, and get to know this family who's grown from a few blood children now to almost, I think, almost 12 kids as they've adopted time and time again foster kids bringing them into their home it's not for personal gain it's not because they're going to get more money can take better vacations on the contrary that's a lot more laundry to do it's a lot more mouths to feed it's a lot more to think about in schooling but Greg and Katie Lyles even though they have children of their own they've opened their home they said we want to make a difference even more in the foster kids in our area it's not for personal gain. See, the servant leadership 
doesn't seek to gain selfishly, but servant leaders do seek to give sacrificially. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 17. Servant leaders do seek to give sacrificially. Verse 17, moreover, there at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day, and he's going to list the Kroger uh, grocery order. Here we go. What was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. So not only did Nehemiah said, no, I'm not going to levy the tax on these people and, and get the food allowance as a governor. Beyond that, as God allows me, I'm going to provide for 150 men plus the foreigners who will come and sit at my table. This is what I'm going to give and provide. Now we see God had, had obviously blessed Nehemiah financially to be able to do this. That was a lot of money. That was a lot of investment. So there's two principles here. Nehemiah was not wrong in having possessions, but Nehemiah was very God-centered and others-focused when he used his possessions and his wealth to bless those under his leadership and say, this is what I'm going to do to help those around me. See, the servant leaders do seek to give sacrificially. How do you give sacrificially to others? Do you look for ways? Oh, man, Pastor Dave, I I don't really have a lot of money. Maybe you don't, but what talents do you have that you can offer? What skills do you have that you can help someone else? Do you have teaching abilities? Help someone with their work. Do some tutoring. Are you a carpenter? Help somebody with some, some projects around the house. Do you know how to drive? See if somebody needs a ride to the, to the airport or a ride to a doctor's office. There's so many ways that you can give and invest and help sacrificially. The second question was, to whom are you willing to give sacrificially? Just to those right, right in your little group? Just to your immediate family? Maybe just to your church family? I'd encourage you to look beyond that. God, help us to see who you would have us to give sacrificially as servant leaders. And then thirdly, servant leadership is personally displayed. Before we look at Nehemiah's example, I want to start with God's example because that's how Nehemiah even knew how to serve as a leader as he mirrored his life after his fear on God. So look with me in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. We see here that God's example, we see that the Lord is our helper. Well, that's a pretty qualified helper, I'd say. I, as a human, as a man, in my weaknesses, in my mistakes, but I can count on God Almighty to be my helper. That's the promise we have in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then verse 6, 
Because of this truth, we see in verse 6, it says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. I've said it before, but it's, it's, it, it's a good point to be reminded of. That God is our source. Everything else are just resources. It's an idea that I first heard from Tony Evans, and I, I just it, it was really an encouragement to me. God is our source. Your job is a resource. Social Security check is a is a resource. Your health uh, policy, health insurance policy, that's a, a resource. Those things can change. This building that God has allowed us to meet in right now is a resource. But if this building were to burn down tomorrow, who's our source? God. If you're to lose your job tomorrow, who's your source? God. If you get the the, the call tomorrow, uh, David, you have cancer, who's my source? God. The Lord is my helper. Not only that, but the Lord is with us. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Man, I love that. A very present help in trouble. Some of you may have seen, uh, I think Jessica posted it, or maybe Christine, I'm not sure, but when we got back from Brazil and we went, uh, Jessica went to pick up her van that she'd left in a hotel parking lot, it was very inexpensive parking uh, while we were in Brazil. It was really a great deal. Um, but we didn't know that oftentimes windows got busted out in this hotel parking lot. So when she showed up to pick up her van, one of the windows had been busted out. And so we ended up meeting her at the hotel and we called the police and Kim called 911 and was put on hold. And dad was standing there and he said, boy, it's a good thing. It's not like a life and death situation. 911, can you hold please? That's not God. We see in Psalm chapter 46 that God is a very present help in trouble. He's always ready. Always an open line. We'll never get a busy signal. We'll never have a drop call. We'll never be confused by the, by, you know, by, by the message we're getting. He's always a very present help in trouble. Therefore, Psalm 46 verse 2, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, why don't we need to fear? Because God's a very present help in trouble. Matthew 1, 22 and 23, we see even, even one of the names of God reminds us that he's present. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I've talked often, many of you have prayed, and some of you even met Wilson, who passed away a little over a year ago. Last week, completed one year that he went to be with Christ. We had a very sweet visit with Cynthia and Analauda and Filippi. But after Wilson and Cynthia accepted Christ as their Savior, began to be changed by God's glory, and then they had a son, Felipe, they, they put as his middle name, Emmanuel, God with us. 
And as we were with them just for a few days, and as I saw Felipe, who's just, he's funny. I mean, he's, he's, he's real. I hope that you get a chance to meet them sometime. But Felipe's full of life, seven years old, I think. But as I saw him, I thought, even, even just him and his name is a reminder to Cynthia during the dark nights and the long days and the lonely weeks, God is with us. Even though Wilson's gone and he's in heaven, God is still here. Emmanuel, God with us. That's God's example. So what's God's expectation He expects us to worship him. Jonathan Dodson said this, It's impossible to be humble and generous when we aren't looking at something greater and more gracious than ourselves. Humility and generosity need a target. We need others to serve and a great God to worship. So if I'm not focused on God, if I'm not looking at his majesty and remembering how great a God he is, it'll be very easy for me to think more of myself than I really should. But the more that I, that I, that I bask in his majesty and, and in his goodness and in his mercy and forgiveness for me, the more humble that I'll be and the more ready that I'll be to serve others. Notice with me Peter's challenge even to pastors. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. And I want you to see as I read through this passage how the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses Peter to pen words that has two elements of both looking to God and then serving others. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So I exhort the elders, these are leaders, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, but notice, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter already starts off, he's talking about, listen, we are witnesses of the suffering of Christ. So in essence, he's, he's laying the foundation, he's saying, what, what else I'm going to say here, think about the sufferings that Christ has gone through. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Then verse 2, a verb, shepherd, look after, watch, care for, shepherd, the flock of who? The flock of God. It's not David's flock. It's not Pastor Brian's flock at, at Lebanon primarily. It's God's flock. And we have the ability, as we're, as we're the witnesses of sufferings of Christ, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Verse 2, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Next phrase, as God would have you. Thinking about, how does God want me to serve? How would God do this? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples, a verb again, being examples to the flock. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, so Peter's saying, listen, elders, as I'm an elder with you, think about the sufferings of Christ, think who really the flock belongs to, it's God's flock, and then think about Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, coming back, When the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Then one more time, he, he comes back and he shows again, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, once again, under the mighty hand of God. So Peter, time and time again, he's going back. I've seen the sufferings of Christ. I'm thinking about the chief shepherd who's going to come back. I know that God opposes the proud. I'm thinking about the mighty hand of God. And it's these things, elders, fellow elders, that should motivate us to shepherd the flock, to be examples, to serve them, not for my gain, but for their good. Humble yourselves, verse 6, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Servant leadership will not happen if we are not worshiping God first. If we're not growing in our understanding, in our, in our humility before God himself, servant leadership will not happen. So we're to worship him, but we're also to serve others. Notice with me in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. <clears throat> Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the, of the governor. Former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. But notice verse 16. I also persevered in the work on this wall. Nehemiah had been cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah had special authority to bring back wood from the forest. He had protection of none other than representatives of the king himself. Nehemiah had the wherewithal that he could feed 150 plus men every day at his table. But you know where Nehemiah was when the group was working? He was right there working with them. And he says, I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men. We see in Nehemiah is ready to personally display, to personally show, yes, I am a servant leader and I'll be with you working, providing, ministering, fellowshipping. I'm with you. He wasn't just in an office calling the shots. He was right there with them. I remember one time listening to famous talk show host, conservative talk show host, and somehow it came up in his conversation about Walmart. And he said, you know, I wouldn't really know for myself because I've never been in a Walmart personally. I send other people to do that stuff for me. I thought, wow, don't even know what Walmart's like. Woo, that's not servant leadership. I send other people to do that stuff for me. I don't even know what Walmart's like. 
Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives, longer than any other politician so far in the history of our nation. He heard about a friend of his who had a teenage daughter that was suddenly killed. So the next morning, he showed up at this friend's house, and he knocked on the door. And the friend came to the door, and he says, Mr. Speaker, Sam looked back at me and says, yeah, I just stopped by to see if there's anything I could do. So the dad said, well, I was just making arrangements, you know, for the funeral and all these things, and I, I really don't see anything really that you could do. So Sam Rayburn said, well, have you had coffee? He said, no, we haven't had time to make coffee this morning. We've got so much other things we've been thinking about. He said, all right, can I come in? And I want to make you coffee. I said, sure. So Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, the United States House of Representatives, went in, made the family coffee. And in the process, his friend stopped him and says, but weren't you supposed to be at the White House this morning? And Sam said, yeah, but I called the president and I told him, I said, I had other more important things to do. That's the idea of servant-based leadership and being ready and present. We see Henry Blackaby said this, some would define a servant like this. A servant is one who finds out what his master wants him to do and then he does it. The human concept of a servant is that a servant goes to the master and says, Master, what do you want me to do? The master tells him, the servant goes off by himself and does it. But that's not the biblical concept of a servant of God. Being a servant of God is different from being a servant of a human master. A servant of a human master works for his master, whereas we see God works through his servants. That's the privilege. That's why we can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9, for we are co-laborers with God. That's an awesome co-worker. We're co-laborers with God because he works through us. We don't just work for him and kind of go off on our own and do this little task and do that little task, but he works through us. That's why we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be, notice this, among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul saw himself as a servant that God would work through. And then as he worked through and touched the lives of these in Macedonia, then they were touched and they allowed God to work through them so that the whole region began to see this is what Christ does in the life of somebody. This is the difference that Christ can make as we allow God to work through us men and women and leaders. That's what can happen as well. In fact, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 
through 40. Not only do we see Nehemiah's example, we don't see just God's example, we don't see Paul's example, but here in Matthew 22, Jesus is saying, now this is for you. Verses 36 through 40, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's worship. That's the worship part. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I want to ask you, how well are you doing in allowing God to work through you to benefit and to be a servant leader to others? See that we're supposed to worship him. We're supposed to serve others. But then notice the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 5. We're also supposed to trust him. Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 19. As we see Nehemiah do several times throughout this book, he offers up a short but powerful and very, very evident prayer as he says, Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah shows here that his ultimate trust and confidence in the results of his servant-based leadership and effort and work and sacrifice is in God's hands. I'm tempted, and I'm sure Nehemiah was at times, to think, and I know you are as well because we're humans, is it worth it? Is it worth the time? Is it worth the sacrifice? Are we making a difference? Dad, you may think, am I, am I making a difference in my family, in my home? Is it worth the sacrifice? We need to go back and say, just like Nehemiah did, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. And the promise of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray this morning?